Wednesday, January 23rd, 2013, episode number 34 of the Football Nation Today podcast with Alex Reamer on footballnation.com. Today podcast hosted by yours truly, Alex Reamer. Show is published every Wednesday on footballnation.com. And for your downloading convenience in the iTunes store, please subscribe to the Football Nation Today podcast and the other shows available on footballnation.com in the iTunes store. If you have yet to do so, the two week Super Bowl buildup has officially begun. Not sure if you're aware of the fact that a Jim and John Harbaugh are brothers. Uh, no one's mentioned that, but yes, we do have a uh, Bro Bowl. Oh, God. And uh, I also don't know if you know this little tidbit about the game coming up, but it will be Ray Lewis's final game as well. He's retiring at the end of the Super Bowl. Oh, and if you didn't know those things, again, I'm sorry for spoiling the fun for you because yeah, no one's really mentioned them. I think those two things uh, have been really downplayed over the past couple of days. Uh, my goodness, the Super Bowl buildup is uh, interminable. Um, and what also is interminable are, are uh, Sundays without NFL action. And, of course, we have no football this weekend in between the championship games and the Super Bowl. So it's almost as if the sporting gods have given us a little sneak peek into uh, just how boring Sundays are without the NFL. Especially for us up north when it's like 10 degrees outside as it has been in the Boston area this week. Uh, oh, boring, boring, boring. Who's ready for some Hot January NBA action. Not this guy. Uh, but what is not boring is this show, Football Nation Today. And I say that because many of you have seemed to enjoy the past couple of episodes. Again, record views, record comments. Gotten some great comments on the show page. Some insightful, interesting emails as well. Keep the show participation up. As I've said several times in the past, I love knowing that I'm not just talking into the abyss. Uh, coming up today, we will spend the bulk of our time recapping the championship games from this past Sunday. Next week will be our big Super Bowl preview show. Uh, I know a lot has already been said about these games, so I'm going to look at both the AFC and NFC championship games from a bit of a big picture perspective. And at the end of the first down segment, coming up momentarily, I'll try to answer the question, what lessons have we learned from these games? With the Ravens and 49ers moving on, two teams that may not have the elite quarterback, but have the physical, hard-nosed defense. What lessons have we learned? We'll talk about that in the first down segment. Second down segment, biggest off-field story of the week. Uh, eight coaching vacancies were filled this offseason in the NFL. None of them filled by African-Americans. This has called uh, the Rooney Rule into question. Does it have to be rebranded? Does it have to be expanded? Um, where is Where does this discussion go between race and the NFL and the lack of African-Americans who are now head coaches in this league? Uh, third down segment, it's our big up slowdown segment, looking at uh, Bill Callahan throwing the Super Bowl in 2012 because he hated his team. The Eagles hire a Chip Kelly and the Jets in the Jets GM search, finally coming to a close. And in the fourth down segment with the Reamer rant, Bill Belichick is a sore loser. Newsflash. Somehow people are surprised by this. It's Football Nation Today, episode number 34. Back in a moment. My name is Alex Reamer.
So, the most shocking thing to me about the AFC Championship game is that it was the Ravens and not the Patriots who controlled the pace of the game. Well, maybe I shouldn't say it was the most shocking thing to me because I actually picked the Ravens to win the game last week. Um, but if you've watched a lot of Patriots football, as I have, lived in the New England area, follow the Patriots on a weekly basis, the Patriots always seem to get their opposition to play to their level, to play their style of game. And last Sunday, I really thought it was the Ravens and not the Patriots who controlled the pace of that ball game. Uh, the Ravens' defense, as I predicted last week, were ready for the Patriots' hurry-up offense. The Patriots ran it once and early on in the first half. The drive resulted in a field goal. The Ravens were ready for the hurry-up, and then they pretty much abandoned it. And maybe they shouldn't have. I mean, that's an older Ravens defense that, you know, just finished up a five, you know, a two-overtime game. They played five quarters, two overtimes in Denver the week before. So maybe the Patriots shouldn't have abandoned that, but I think it shows the respect the Patriots have for the Ravens defense. And when the Patriots did try to run that hurry-up offense in the red zone early on in the first quarter, uh, the Ravens' defense was ready. They stopped it and held the Patriots to a mere field goal. Uh, the Patriots struggled in the red zone all night long. And speaking of the respect the Patriots' offense showed for the Ravens' defense, uh, they punted when they were inside Baltimore territory. They punted the ball early on in the third quarter when they were on the Ravens' 34-yard line. And then after that drive, the Ravens scored three consecutive touchdowns to take the lead of the game to take the to uh, take the lead. Excuse me. Uh, the Patriots also punted from the Ravens' 35-yard line in Sunday's game as well. Um, stuff that you don't see them do often. You know, I mean, go back to the one in the early early on in the third quarter. Wes Walker drops that key pass on third down, setting up a fourth down. I believe it was a fourth and seven, but still, you're on the Ravens' 34-yard line. That, the Patriots never punt from that spot. Never, ever, ever. They never do it. They don't punt from the 35-yard line, which they also did. I mean, sometimes they even punt from their own 35-yard line, really. But yet, they did that on Sunday. So they really changed up the way they play. They abandoned the hurry-up offense after trying it a few times early on in the first half to limited, if not any success, uh, to, to, uh, to limited to no success. Um, and they punted quite a few times when they were inside Baltimore territory, and in some cases, deep inside Baltimore territory, knocking on the red zone on the 34 and 35-yard line, stuff the Patriots never do in the regular season against any other opponents. So the Ravens got their Patriots to play more of their kind of game, more of a physical field position kind of game. Uh, Joe Flacco orchestrated some terrific drives in the second half. He's thrown eight touchdowns, zero interceptions this postseason. The Ravens decided to open up Throw in the second half, Jim Caldwell realized that, uh, you know, there's more to the field than just the right sideline, which is, you know, Joe Flacco lobbed up to Torrey Smith a couple times in the first half down the right sideline, and that was pretty much it for the Ravens passing game. And in this halftime, uh, Caldwell must have had an epiphany and said, oh, wait a minute, oh, yeah, we got uh, we got Anquan Bolden, we got Dennis Pitta, we got Ray Rice, oh, yeah, we got the middle of the field, oh, my God, we even have the left side of the field, oh, it's bigger than the, just down the right sideline. Um... 
So the Ravens decided to open it up in the second half, air it out, and Joe Flacco did a great job. And I'm ready to say I was wrong on Flacco. I still don't think he's an elite quarterback. An elite to me is top 10. I don't think Joe Flacco's a top 10 guy. But he's had a terrific postseason. He's won a lot in his career in the postseason. He's now been to three AFC Championship games. He's going to his first Super Bowl. Uh, you got to give Flacco credit. To me, he's definitely a top 15 guy, maybe even a top 12 guy. Um, you can win with Joe Flacco. I wasn't sure if you could at the start of this postseason, but the Ravens have shown you can win with Joe Flacco. And what a time for Flacco to step up his game in the playoffs because, of course, he is in a contract year. Uh, but going back to my first point, and this is really the biggest takeaway from the game to me, about how the Ravens controlled the pace of the game. Uh, Baltimore proved to be the tougher team. I look at Bernard, Bernard Pollard, the safety, right? The Patriots killer, the man who knocked out Brady, knocked out Welker, knocked out Gronkowski, and... Knocked out Steven Ridley in last Sunday's game, causing a fumble, Patriots removing the ball, Ravenson scored on that possession, making it a 28-13 game. Uh, conversely, I look at Gerard Mayo, who knocked out tight end Dennis Pitta in the third quarter, and then in the very next play, Pitta comes back, catches a touchdown pass, wasn't affected. Meanwhile, Welker got his bell rung early, early on in the third quarter, and then dropped a key third down pass a few short plays later. It seemed as if Welker was still greatly affected by that hit he took a few plays earlier. A Shane Vereen had a big drop in the third quarter um, when the Patriots were moving the football. He maybe heard footsteps, saw Bernard Pollard in his, uh, you know, saw Bernard Pollard off the corner of his eye and said, oh, I don't want nothing to do with this guy, and dropped the football, couldn't make that play. I thought Rob Gronkowski's absence was felt uh, from a physical perspective. The Ravens' defense pushed around the Patriots' offense a little bit. And to go back to Pollard, that was a clean hit on Ridley. I mean, Ridley was the one, looking at it on replay, who lowered his head. Bernard Pollard led with his shoulder there. You know, Pollard gets a lot of grief around the Boston area, as one might suspect he would, but every hit he's had on every Patriot, from Brady, he didn't really hit Welker in Houston a few several years ago, uh, to Gronkowski, to Ridley on Sunday, every hit has been a clean hit. Pollard led with the shoulder there. That's just tough, physical football that is actually still legal, if you do it correctly, in today's game. And I think the Ravens' defense deserves a lot of credit for still being able to play tough, for still being able to play physically, for still being able to set the tempo, but doing it within the rules, which is very, very tough to do. And I think a lot of that falls to the veteran leadership on the team, from Ray Lewis to Ed Reed to a guy like Terrell Suggs. These are guys who have been there before. They know how to play at this level, and the Ravens do it within the rules, which is a testament to their coaching staff, and it's a testament to the leadership on that defense. Um, but the Ravens proved to be the tougher team. No doubt about it. All you need to see was the Pollard hit on Steven Ridley, which was a good, clean football hit. I also think a big factor in this game were injuries. Not just Gronkowski for the Patriots on offense, but Chandler Jones and Aqib Tlaib on defense. With Chandler Jones out, the Patriots really struggled to generate a pass rush. Only had one sack, Rob Ninkovich, and they didn't really move Flacco out of the pocket. At any other point in the ballgame, Joe Flacco is not a mobile guy. You got to force the issue with him. You got to move the pocket on him. And the Patriots were simply incapable of doing that. And once Tlaib went out in the second quarter... The Ravens made their adjustments at halftime, aired it out. Patriots didn't have an answer because, like we've said before this season, when Tlaib goes out, 
the whole, the domino effect happens in the Patriots secondary. You have to move Kyle Arrington from inside corner to outside corner where he's a weakness. Marquise Cole was covering the inside, and Marquise Cole is no match for Anquan Bolden, who got two big touchdown passes in the second half on Sunday. Um, so once Jones and Tlaib were both out, the Patriots reverted back to being an average pass defense, and it just wasn't good enough against the Ravens' offense with the way Flacco was playing on Sunday. Um, and we talk about the depth the Patriots have, and they certainly have a lot of depth on offense, but on defense, it's not really there. Without Jones, they don't have another pass rusher. They don't have one guy who can step in and do a respectable job. Maybe Ninkovich. In the secondary, certainly, you lose Tlaib, the domino effect completely falls into place. So, for all the credit, we give the Patriots for their enor- for their immense depth. And on offense, they certainly have it. But on defense, they're not quite there yet. And I think once Jones and Tlaib were both out, uh, it was just too much for the Patriots' pass defense to overcome. Uh, but overall, I look at this game, and I say the Patriots didn't play terribly you know I mean it's cute to say Tom Brady is seven and seven in his last 14 postseason games and have that be the end you know just throw that stat out there oh I'm look at me I have my hot takes Tom Brady seven and seven in his last postseason games postseason choke artist Tom Brady and you know oh segment over got the hot take out there and that's that's trolling essentially because that's not telling the full story that's not giving you any insight whatsoever. That's just reading off of a stat sheet. Uh, I can tell you that Tom Brady's three worst career playoff games have now come against Baltimore. The 2009 wildcard game, where he threw three interceptions and the Ravens blow out. Last year's AFC Championship game, which the Patriots won, but Brady didn't throw, an inter- uh, th- didn't throw a touchdown pass. And this year's AFC Championship game, Patriots lost. Brady only threw one touchdown pass. And Brady's passer QB rating was something like 67. Uh, not good at all. For whatever reason, Brady has struggled his last three times against the Ravens. They know how to play him defensively. Uh, you want to talk about Brady getting up there in age? One thing I noticed is he's much slower than he used to be. When the pocket collapses, you have to move Brady outside. Ravens played good physical coverage downfield on Patriots receivers. Uh, Brady couldn't make anything happen with his legs, and he was never a mobile quarterback. But now he is beyond slow. I mean, Tom Brady couldn't even... Uh, outrun that line judge, the, the referee who he ran into late in the second half. I mean, it was embarrassing. And it bit the Patriots on that fourth and four on the same drive Vereen dropped the ball. Uh, Haloti Nada was chasing Brady, fourth and four, Brady scrambling outside of the pocket. And you're watching the game and you say, tuck it and run, tuck it and run. And then Brady just lobs it incomplete to the end zone intended for Deion Branch. But he essentially just threw it away. Then you look at the replay and you say, you know what? Brady wouldn't have been able to outrun Nada there. You know, Nada would have caught him. Uh, Brady can't even outrun a line judge. My God, is he slow. Um, But at the end of the day, Tom Brady is still an elite quarterback. And I would take him on my team any day of the week. And I don't think he was horrible on Sunday. I think the Patriots offense had some key drops. Welker Obviously, on the third down, and the Patriots are still up 13-7. and seven. Shane Vereen, I think that was a big drop. It came on a second down, but the Patriots at that point, it was a 21-13 game. Still a one, uh, it was a 21-13 uh, game, that's correct. Uh, have a real chance there to still make it a ball game. And Vereen drops it on a key second down. And then, of course, Patriots go four and out there. And, you know, I think the bigger narrative is... The Ravens took the Patriots out of their rhythm. It's a bigger narrative problem with the offense than just Brady. 
Every season since 2007, the Patriots have run into a tougher, more physical defense that has been able to take them out of their rhythm. The Giants in the 07 Super Bowl, the Ravens in 09, the Jets in 2010, the Giants again in last year's Super Bowl, and the Ravens in this year's AFC Championship game. And that's not just a Tom Brady issue. That's an issue of the entire offense just not being quite physical enough. And if Rob Gronkowski was healthy in this game, if Rob Gronkowski was healthy in last year's Super Bowl, maybe that would have been the deciding difference. I don't know. But for whatever reason, the Patriots offense, when, they have, when they've run up against more physical defense, they haven't been able to break through. And maybe it's also some younger guys in that offense. You know, Aaron Hernandez is 23. Steven Ridley is 23. And the Patriots all season ran the football more than they had in previous years. They ran it more in third and short. But then what happened in Sunday's game? You got into second and short, third and short, and there they were, back to the shotgun, empty backfield. You know I'm not a proponent of ground and pound, but on third and two, do you really need to go empty backfield? I mean, can't you, ha can't you just keep the run on the table there to at least keep the defense honest? So is it that Josh McDaniels and the Patriots shied away from the 23-year-old Ridley and his fumbling problems against a more physical Ravens defense in that game? I don't know. Um, but I think the Patriots' offensive troubles, I know the Patriots' offensive troubles against these more physical defenses the past several postseasons extend way, way beyond Tom Brady. And I'm sorry, Tom Brady is not even on the top 50 list of things wrong with this Patriots team. I'm sorry, I'm not going to entertain that kind of conversation. But his worst three player performance have come against the Baltimore Ravens defense. One thing you will, I will be able to really criticize the Patriots here for is Bill Belichick's clock management at the end of the first half. It was terrible. That was Mickey Mouse stuff. That's something that you see North Turner teams do. Uh, Brady scrambles with 26 seconds left in the first half. He slides. At the end of the play, 19 seconds left. Patriots have a timeout remaining. Nobody calls a timeout. It's a fire drill. They scramble up to the line, have no idea what they're doing. They waste 15 seconds trying to get a playoff, and then they finally have to call a timeout. Steven Guskowski kicks the field goal. One timeout remaining. The instant Brady slides, he has to know, call a timeout. Or Belichick on the sidelines has to say, oh wait, timeout. Somebody there has to take control of the situation and call a timeout. Because with 19 seconds left, with Tom Brady as quarterback, that's enough time for two shots into the end zone. And you never see the Patriots make a mistake like that in the regular season. They never do that kind of crap. Again, that's North Turner stuff. Really, it's that bad. That's something Patriots fans make fun of other teams that do that. But it happened in the biggest spot in the AFC title game. It's reminiscent of the 12 men on the field call in last year's Super Bowl, which negated an early turnover. Again, the Patriots... Never have stuff like that happen to them. 12 men on the field, please. That's for the Jets. But no, it happened to the Patriots early on in last year's Super Bowl and negated a big turnover early in that ballgame. So, for whatever reason, the past couple of years, the lapses, the coaching lapses, the time management lapses that never, ever happened to the Patriots in the regular season seem to happen to them in these big games now. Why? That's a question you can ask as well. 
But in closing on the Patriots, and we focused a lot on the Patriots here because next week we'll focus a lot on the Ravens. I think the Patriots, though, when I look at the big picture, are right there. You know, I think the defense is this close to being a high-caliber defense again. You know, I look at how every key member on this defense, except Vince Wilfork, is under 30, and Vince Wilfork is only 31. I look at guys like Devin McCourty now. Next year will be his fourth year in the league. He's already played in three playoffs, a Super, uh, Super Bowl, two AFC title games. Gerard Mayo, same thing. A Super Bowl, two AFC title games. We know the experience Wolfork has. Brandon Spike, same thing. Super Bowl, two AFC title games. This defense now has been together for four or five years. Um, if they re-sign Aqib Tlaib, which I think is a must for them, just tell them to take the money and try not to shoot anybody, um, they're there. I think this defense is right there. They are this close to being a high-caliber defense once again. It's another year with Chandler Jones and Dante Hightower. I think Belichick changed his drafting philosophy last year as well, traded up and got guys like Jones and Hightower. Um, the defense is right there. They are this close to being a high-caliber defense. And the offense, in my opinion, is not this team's problem. I think guys like Hernandez and Ridley, another year of experience, which is a good thing. Brandon Lloyd played in his first postseason, a good thing. You hope Gronkowski is healthy for the deep playoff run next year. Again, I know Tom Brady, 7-7 seven and seven in his last postseason games, but let me ask all you people a question. Do you want Tom Brady as your quarterback, or do you not want Tom Brady as your quarterback? Eh, you still want Tom Brady as your quarterback. Uh, this team is right there. They are this close to breaking through again. I mean, you knock on the door enough times, you're going to break through again. I would expect nothing less but a deep playoff run from the Patriots next season. Switching gears to the NFC Championship game, the big story here, like in the AFC Championship game, was a second-half comeback by a Harbaugh brother. Woo! Did you know Jim and John are brothers? Didn't know if you caught that this week. Um, the 49ers erased a 17-point deficit to beat the Falcons in Atlanta last week, and, you know, I think the Falcons and Patriots' performances were very different in the championship games, respectively. I think the Ravens beat the Patriots. I think the Ravens controlled the pace of the game, controlled the style of play, and were just more physical and, and better than the Patriots were. I think the Patriots left some plays on the field with the dropped passes in the second half and the terrible clock management at the end of the first half, but all in all, I think the Ravens controlled that game and were better than the Patriots were. I think the Falcons tried to give it away to the 49ers. I look at the second half. Interception, and then Matt Ryan drops the snap on consecutive drives. 49ers luckily don't score in any of those drives. In fact, um, Falcons uh, safe, uh, corner Dante Robinson forces uh, strips Michael Crabtree right on the goal line. Seems to make the defensive play that will save the Falcons' season. But then on the very next drive, the Falcons can't muster a first down, give the 49ers the ball right back deep in Atlanta territory, and the 49ers score quickly to take the lead. Uh, Colin Kaepernick ran all over the Packers two weeks ago in the divisional round. He threw over the Falcons last uh, this past Sunday in the NFC title game. Um, he only ran twice on Sunday, did Kaepernick, stood back in the pocket, sling the ball over the field. Uh, Kaepernick didn't let his early struggles get the best of him. He only had one passing yard and took a sack. Well, Matt Ryan led the Falcons to a 17-0 lead, but Kaepernick overcame his early woes and delivered a hell of a performance for the 49ers. Um, 
And San Francisco certainly won largely due to their defense. And after a rough first half, their defense's ability to contain the Falcons and Matt Ryan and that high-flying offense in the second half. But the 49ers also won because their offense enabled them to erase a 17-point deficit, and they scored 28 points in total. And that's the lesson I want to take from Championship Sunday. The Ravens and 49ers both beat teams that had better offenses than they did. Tom Brady's a better quarterback than Joe Flacco. I think many thought Matt Ryan was a better quarterback than Colin Kaepernick. Now, notice, though, I didn't say, all right, excuse me, I'm sorry, offenses. Got it wrong. Page said better offense than the Ravens. 49ers are better offense than the Falcons. I don't think that Ryan is a better quarterback than Kaepernick, but many did. So I think the quarterback thing works. Regardless, Patriots, Falcons, more finesse offensive teams. Ravens, 49ers, at least their stereotype, more physical, defensive-oriented teams. We can all agree on that. And a lot of people have said, well, the Ravens and 49ers showed us with their wins on Sunday that you still need defense to win. You still need to be physical to win. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. In playoff football, even though the league is totally trending in the offensive direction, no debate there. Year after year, it's proven that you need a physical, good defense to win. You need that component, too. And the Ravens most certainly have it. The 49ers have it. And now it's a big difference for those two teams on Sunday. The Ravens are able to bully the Patriots and get them to change their game plan. And the 49ers did a similar thing to the Falcons in the second half and made them crap their pants, essentially, uh, with some horrible drives there and the interception and Ryan dropping the snap. But here's the other thing about the Ravens and 49ers that a lot of people are overlooking because it doesn't fit into, you know, their defense still wins narrative. Both teams put up 28 points. Both teams came back in the second half. Both teams also had to score to win. You know, I mean, the Ravens offense had success once they started throwing the football in the second half. The 49ers offense had success because Colin Kaepernick was able to throw the football in the second half. The 49ers were down by 17 points in the third quarter. They wouldn't have gained those points back just by handing it to Frank Gore, who's a terrific running back and scored twice on 90 yards. The bread and butter of the San Francisco offense on Sunday was Kaepernick throwing the ball from the pocket. The bread and butter of the Ravens offense on Sunday was Flacco standing in the pocket throwing the football over the Patriots. In the playoffs, you need to be a physical team, yes. But you also need a team that can score. And the Ravens and 49ers scored. They both nearly scored 30 points on Sunday. And both teams' offenses had success when they aired it out in the second half. So it sounds like a stupid point. Oh, obviously, Alex, you need to be a well-rounded team to win. Duh. But I think a lot of people forget that part of it. Because I think a lot of people look at the Ravens and 49ers winning and beating Tom Brady and beating Matt Ryan and saying, Whoa, defense still wins. Yes. Still need a good physical defense to win in January, which I like. But both teams also scored 28 points. And both teams also erased deficits, and the Niners in particular, that 17-point deficit in the second half. Hmm. Still need to score to win. And the 49ers and Ravens can play hard physical defense, 
and they can score as well, which is why they both won on Sunday. So moving on to our second down segment, it's where we discuss the biggest off-field NFL story of the past week. Now, the past several weeks, we've discussed the NFL coaching carousel in this segment. All the coaching vacancies have finally been filled. All eight vacancies now taken. And no African-American head coach was hired to fill the eight coaching vacancies this offseason. This has caused a mass outrage. And from a demographic standpoint, it doesn't feel right, given the makeup of the league. It doesn't feel right that when there were eight coaching vacancies, not one of them was filled by an African-American. And I don't even think an African-American was seriously considered for any of those coaching vacancies. We only have two black coaches in the league still, I believe. Wesley Frazier in Minnesota, Mike Tomlin in Pittsburgh. A few years ago, we had a few more, but now we're down to just those guys. And given the demographics of the league, given the makeup of the league, it just doesn't feel right that we have so few, never mind black head coaches, but black coaches, period, in the league. Uh, Chris Rock tweeted out this past weekend, uh, quote, Andy Reid wins four games and everybody wants him. Levy Smith wins 10 games and can't get a job. Okay, I read that tweet and I say, cute little tweet, Chris. But say what you want to say. You know, let's stop dancing around this issue. And, you know, throwing uh, vague language out there. No, let's say what you want to say. Say what you mean. Chris Rock, what you mean to say, and what a lot of people mean to say, is the NFL is a racist operation. Say it. Go out and say it. Stop parsing your words. What you're trying to say by tweeting out something like that, Andy Reid wins four games and everybody wants him, Levy Smith wins tens games, can't get a job. What you're trying to say is the NFL is a racist operation. Okay, so Chris Rock and many think the NFL is a racist operation. Let's stop parsing words and start saying what we mean. Uh, here's my take on that in regards to the lack of head coaches in the league, the lack of head coaches hired this offseason. I'm trying really hard not to sound like a Fox News pundit because, <laughs> and conservative friends out there listening, I love you, but you know, I think you know, a lot of people say racism is over, and that's asinine. Racism is not over in this country, not by a long shot. Just because we have a black president doesn't mean racism is over. I think a lot of the venom directed at Obama in his first term um, showed us that. Uh, nonetheless, this isn't a political show. This is a football show. And in the context of football, I don't think the NFL is a racist league. Uh, I don't think so. I think to say that is almost akin to just saying, oh, Tom Brady, 7-7 seven and seven, his last 14 games. Blah, look at me, hot take. No, not hot take, stupid take. You're not thinking it through. It's a much more nuanced opinion than that. Um, you look at Andy Reid and Levy Smith for the Chiefs. Let's do that because Mr. Chris Rock brought it up. Um, Andy Reid was a better fit for the Chiefs than Levy Smith. Because the Chiefs need a quarterback. And Andy Reid is an offensive mind who can develop a quarterback. Levy Smith can't develop a quarterback. So thus, Andy Reid was a better choice for the Chiefs than Levy Smith. Seven of the eight coaches hired this offseason were offensive guys. And tell me a black offensive coordinator in the league right now. Can you name one? No, I really can't. Uh, so who got passed over, right? Uh, Jim Caldwell would be the one black offensive coordinator who got passed over. And Jim Caldwell did go 14-2 with the Colts three years ago. But that was with Peyton Manning, and that was Manning's offense, not Caldwell's offense. Manning gets hurt, 
Colts go 2-14 two, two years ago. Consensus is Caldwell needs to go. Fire Caldwell, hire Chuck Pagano, make the playoffs this season. Jim Caldwell's Wake Forest head coach went 26-63. and 63. Is that a guy who deserves another crack at a head coaching job? Mmm, don't think so. Hugh Jackson with the Raiders went 8-8. Eight and eight. The Chiefs can choose between Andy Reid and Hugh Jackson. Who's the better choice? Reid. Raheem Morris worked well in the beginning in Tampa Bay, but completely fell apart at the end. Players didn't even want to show up for him. They quit on that team. Raheem Morris deserve another crack at it right away? You know, I mean, you're the Cardinals. Raheem Morris or Bruce Arians? The guy who coached up Andrew Luck this year. Mm, going with Bruce Arians. So, again, it doesn't look right. From a demographic standpoint, it doesn't look right that there are so few NFL head coaches and that out of eight head coaching vacancies this offseason, not one of the new coaches hired is an, was an African-American. But I don't know. I mean, the NFL is a racist league? I don't, I don't think so. I really don't think so. I think a lot of it is circumstantial. Now, you want to talk about changing the Rooney rule. I think we maybe should extend it to coordinators because so many teams hire from within, and everyone loves to find the hotshot new coordinator. Maybe that's what needs to be done. Maybe we need to extend the Rooney rule to coordinators, and I'd totally be in favor of that. But to reiterate, I think the explanation of the lack of black head coaches is far more nuanced than insinuating that the NFL is a racist operation. That's race baiting, it's cheap, and should be over. We're past that now. It's a much more nuanced issue, not in the context of this offseason, it's more circumstantial than anything else. Let's go to the third down segment. It's the big up slowdown segment, or I'll say a statement, and then express my agreement or disagreement with that statement by saying big up or slow down, I was going to talk about Manti Teo here, and the question was going to be, big up or slow down, does Teo's not real dead girlfriend incident, sounds so silly to say, still a week later, but does that affect his NFL draft prospects? But I'm holding off on that question because I think it has to do with what Teo knew and didn't know. If it comes out officially, and I don't know if we'll ever get official confirmation on this, but if the story right now holds that, and the conventional wisdom is that Teo was duped, didn't know, then, no, I don't think it affects him. Poor guy, got duped. He's naive, and it's... I mean, I'm of this generation. I'm Teo's age, roughly, and I, I can't comprehend calling someone my girlfriend who I've never met, but... If Teo didn't know about it, no, it absolutely does not affect his draft status. Maybe, you know, even perpetuates him a little bit. People feel bad for him. But if it comes out that Teo did know about it and perpetuated the lie for whatever reason, fame, glory, whatever, then yeah, I think some teams will look at it and say, this guy is a psychopath. I mean, you're making up a lie like this? A fake dead girlfriend? For what? To give you a Heisman Trophy boost? That's borderline psychotic behavior. At least at face value it is. So I think it purely depends on what the real story is. And maybe we'll never find out the real story. But to me, that's what it depends on when we're talking about Teo's draft prospects. But anyway, 
Big upper sword on number one. Tim Brown, former Raiders wide receiver on Sirius Satellite Radio, insinuated this week that former Raiders head coach Bill Callahan threw the Super Bowl in 2002 because he hated his players and wanted his friend John Gruden to win. Now, Callahan radically changed the game plan on the Friday before the Super Bowl. They went from a run-heavy game plan to a pass-heavy game plan. Former Raiders fullback Zach Crockett said on ESPN Radio this week that the game plan changed because center Barrett Robbins went missing before game time. So big up or slow down, do I buy that Callahan threw the Super Bowl? This is a slow down here. Now, I don't know enough about that 2002 team to make definitive judgments about them. Obviously, it seems as if they were a real dysfunctional bunch. I mean... Some have said Jerry Rice, who now works at ESPN, has told great stories off-camera about the dysfunction of the 2002 Oakland Raiders. Now, the players absolutely loathed Callahan, and he loathed them right back. Um, But I still look at and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Come on. I mean, there is so much at stake for a head coach in the Super Bowl. You're going to tell me that Bill Callahan hated his players so much and was such good buddies with John Gruden that he would rather throw the Super Bowl then be a Super Bowl winning head coach. If you're a Super Bowl winning head coach, you're made for the rest of your life. Never mind career, but your life. That's something nobody can ever take away from you. These guys all have huge, massive egos. There is no way that Bill Callahan could have hated his team that much and thrown the Super Bowl on purpose. So, no. Slow down. There is no way that an NFL head coach would purposely throw the Super Bowl. That's ridiculous. Question number two. Chip Kelly, even though he said he would stay at Oregon, like many college coaches, had an epiphany in the middle of the night and went on to sign up the Eagles, a five-year, $32.5 million contract. Simple question. Big up or slow down. Was this a good hire? I say big up. It's not just a good hire, it's a great hire. It's a risky hire, but you need to take risks in order to win. Chip Kelly is a visionary, and the league is trending in that direction. His style of offense is already in the NFL in several places. The Redskins run a version of it in the NFC East with Robert Griffin. Seahawks and Russell Wilson run a version of it. The Kaepernick and 49ers run a version of it as well. The pistol offense. We're already seeing Chip Kelly's scheme integrated into the NFL. It's not that far in a scheme. Um, the league is certainly trending in that direction. And I like that the Eagles were thinking big. I look at a lot of the athletic pieces on offense, from LaShawn McCoy to Deshaun Jackson. I don't know if Nick Foles is the guy, but Chip Kelly said even, you know, his system isn't predicated on a mobile quarterback. He thinks Nick Foles maybe could be a guy to run it. Uh, But the Eagles have a lot of pieces that make this intriguing. Uh, I think it's a great move for them. And it's not far-fetched that this style of offense, this brand of offense, after it's tweaked a little bit, of course, uh, couldn't succeed in the NFL. I really think it could. The league is already trending in that direction. We're already seeing that style of offense implemented in a lot of other places to high success rates. Uh, So, yeah, you know, I I think Kelly's system can work in the NFL. And what I love most about it is I love the fact the Eagles thought outside of the box a little bit. I love the fact they didn't hire a retread. I love the fact they took a big risk. It's a massive risk. But with the rules being what they are, 
and the league trending in the direction it's trending in, Chip Kelly's style of offense already works to a degree in the NFL. I think it can most certainly work. It really could. I think it's a great hire by the Eagles. Now, the Jets did not make a big-name hire to fill their general manager's job. After a lengthy search, after being turned down by everybody, David Caldwell, most notably, who chose the Jaguars over the Jets, the Jets settled on John Idzik from the Seattle front office to be their new GM. Big up or slow down. The GM search was a disaster. I say big up. The GM search was embarrassing for Woody Johnson and the Jets. They were turned down left and right because the GM knows what a mess it is over there. As I've said before, the Jets haven't hit rock bottom yet. And I know they haven't hit rock bottom yet because they're making the GM stick with Rex Ryan whether he wants to or not. The Red Sox prior to 2012 hadn't hit rock bottom, largely to tie it to baseball, largely because the ownership made Ben Charrington, the new GM, hire Bobby Valentine. It was clear. Bobby Valentine wasn't Charrington's choice. Dale Swain was, who was eventually hired by the Cubs to manage. And what happened in 2012 with the Red Sox? Well, a lot of bickering, a lot of leaks to the media, a lot of reports about players going through the back, uh, up the back stairs to complain to Charrington about Valentine, a lot of insubordination, no backing of the GM, uh, from the GM of, of the manager, disaster. And with the Jets, John Nidzik isn't a Rex Ryan guy. He knows he just has to stick it out with Ryan for a year. What's he going to do? He's going to do everything in his power to get Rex Ryan out of there for the following season. Your coach and GM need to work in concert with each other. They need to work as a cohesive unit. And I don't think that's possible if the general manager doesn't pick the head coach. You cannot force the head coach on the GM, which Woody Johnson has done with Rex Ryan and John Idzik. And again, I think Rex Ryan's a pretty good football coach. He's a great defensive mind. His players seem to like playing for him still. By the way, what was Ryan doing? See that yesterday he was out in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, riding a red Mustang? I mean, what? What's Rex Ryan doing in, in nowhere, Pennsylvania? Now, riding a red Mustang. Was his wife in the car? Was that pretty poor? Yeah. Crazy over there. Um, but I like Rex Ryan. I do. I think he needs an offensive guy, offensive guru, Marty Morningway. Eh, decent. He's had some success in the past, certainly. Comes from winning organizations. So they got their offensive guy, Marty Morningway, with Rex Ryan. But how much power did John Idzik have over his coaching staff? Does he have any power over his coaching staff at all? Mm, the answer is no, which I think it is. Don't like how this marriage is going to work out. And I also don't like the fact that a John Idzik is apparently a big proponent of Tavares Jackson. Oh, the nightmare never seems to end for Jets fans. Let's wrap up the show with the fourth down segment. It is the much-anticipated Reamer rant. Next week, we'll do the Reamer rant. I'm telling you in advance on Super Bowl storylines that are driving me up a wall. Spoiler alert, it's going to be about the Harbro Bowl, or whatever stupid thing you're calling it these days, uh, and Ray Lewis's retirement, and I'm sure something else will pop up that will drive me bananas this week, but that's next week. This week, I'm ranting about people who somehow are still surprised at the fact that Bill Belichick is a sore loser. Hmm, I don't know how people didn't know this, but apparently, 
Not a lot of people knew this because Bill Belichick blew off CBS's Steve Tasker for a post-game interview after last Sunday's loss. Shannon Sharp unleashed his wrath of fury on Coach Belichick in CBS's post-game show. And uh, that fall, and after that, a barrage of uh, it, tweets were made against Belichick, and a lot of airtime has been spent on this. So uh, before we go further, let's uh, play Shannon Sharp's uh, rant on Bill Belichick blowing off his colleague Steve Tasker after last Sunday's Patriots loss. JB, there's something to be said about being gracious in defeat. We've seen the New England Patriots 12, five times in the last 12 years be victorious. And we've seen the opposing coaches that lost come out and talk to our Steve Tasker. Now, Coach Kyle did it when they lost to him. We saw this last week. Bill Belichick makes it real easy for you to root against the Patriots. You can't be a poor sport all the time. You're not going to win all the time. And he does this every time he loses. It is unacceptable. All right, so... I don't have a problem with Shannon Sharp protecting his colleague Steve Tasker. He's from the three Super Bowls himself, and Shannon obviously thought Belichick was disrespectful to Tasker blowing him off post-game interview. Fine, I understand where Shannon's coming from. My problem is the fact that other people out there, and I saw this on my Twitter feed Sunday night after the AFC Championship game, and what people seem to take out of the AFC Championship game, the headline news, I saw an article on Deadspin yesterday about this, is that, shocker, Bill Belichick isn't good with the media. Shocker. Bill Belichick didn't want to engage in a post-game interview with Steve Tasker after his team lost the AFC Championship game. I mean, are we not aware of this? Has this never crossed anybody's minds? Is we have, have, we have, have we never witnessed the fact that Bill Belichick, yeah, is a bit of a sore loser? Is this new to people? I mean, every time Belichick does a handshake, we need to have the camera zooming in on the handshake because one year he didn't shake this guy's hand and just blew right by him. And this gets people so upset. And I don't know why. I don't know why. It's old news. Complaining about Belichick being rude to the media is akin to complaining about airline food. It's cliche in so mid-1990s. Really, we know the deal here. Bill Belichick isn't good with the media. Got it. Why are we wasting oxygen talking about this on TV? Why are we wasting our times writing about this on blogs? Why are we wasting our time tweeting about this on Twitter? And people made this like it was the biggest thing in the world on Twitter. Countless tweets coming on in about Bill Belichick blowing off, blowing off Steve Tasker and what I'm sure would have been an enlightening interview. Hey, coach, what do you think about the game? Well, they played well, we didn't. Hey, Coach, uh, what kind of adjustments did they make at halftime? Well, you know. <clears throat> they threw the ball out. <clears throat> we didn't offend. Oh, thanks, Coach. Yeah, we missed out on that. That was awesome. Woo, too bad we didn't see that. I mean, really, not big news. Not news worth even discussing. I understand why Shannon Sharp was upset. Steve Tasker is his colleague. He feels he has to go to bat with his colleague. But why were you upset? Got news for you folks on Twitter. The world existed before Twitter. Belichick has been blowing off post-game interviews long before the smartphone was created. Not a big deal. Not even close to a big deal. It's old news. Doesn't necessarily make it right. I know John Harbaugh did his post-game interview with Steve Tasker, which I'm sure we learned so much from last year. I'm, I'm aware of that. I'm aware Belichick didn't. But it's not really worth discussing. Yet people talked about it. This was a topic this week. Why? Because it's easy. It's easy. It's like leading with Tom Brady, 7-7 seven seven in his last 14 postseason games. Oh, real hot take there, bud. Oh, yeah. That tells the whole story. Bill Belichick, rude with the media, blew off the postgame interview. Oh, real hot take there. Awesome. 
You know, right, Chris Rock tweeting out, Andy Reid wins four games, gets a job. Webby Smith wins ten, doesn't. Oh, yeah, Chris. Brilliant. Nice, nuanced take there. Be a little more creative. Don't just go for the easy stuff. Yeah, Belichick's bad with the media. Got it! Now, how's 1997 treating you? Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Football Nation Today podcast, episode number 35. Next week, of course, we will spend a lot of time talking about the Ravens and 49ers. We will spend absolutely zero time talking about the fact that Jim and John Harbaugh are brothers. Although I will say for this, John is definitely the nicer Harbaugh than Jim. Uh, as always, if you want to participate in the show, feel free to comment on our show page on footballnation.com. A lot of new fans to the program in the past couple weeks. We thank you for that. Engaging me in conversation makes me uh, feel somewhat important, so that's always good. Also, feel free to send me an email. areamer at bu.edu is my email address. And the Twitter plug, if you want to follow me on Twitter, the uh, website that I love so much, send me a message or follow me, whatever you kids do over there, at alexreamer one that's my Twitter handle. So long. Thank you for listening. Again, Football Nation today, episode 34. We'll talk to you next Wednesday for our Super Bowl preview, 49ers, Ravens. Here's a little here's a little teaser. Uh, I don't think it's going to be much of a game. We'll talk about that next week. So long. Talk to you next Wednesday. Thank you for listening. <laughs>